following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Let's turn to First Peter this morning, the book of First Peter. All right, no fooling around in the front row. We're going to have to separate you two if you're going to be rambunctious and so forth. So we're going to be in the entire book of First Peter this morning. We'll be done around 5 tonight. Eusebius was a Christian bishop of the church in Caesarea around A.D. 330. He's often referred to as the father of church history, a genuine believer, a genuine Christian man, a strong leader. Once the emperor Valens threatened Eusebius with confiscation of all of his goods, Torture, banishment, and death. By the way, it's coming. Confiscation of all your goods, torture, banishment, and even death. And Eusebius responded this way, and this is so helpful, at least to me. He responded this way. He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose. We are so tied to this earth, folks. I hate to admit it. I am. We love our house. We like our car. I really like my car. It's not a Porsche, but I still like it. And, you know, we are so caught up with the things of this earth. Uh, we got new computers. Uh, we got jewelry, we have houses, we have, how, we have cars, uh, we have, you should see my gun collection, a guy might say. And we think of our existence around these things. And his response is, fear confiscation, I, I have nothing to lose, take it all. It's just connected to this dirt, and it doesn't matter to me. And that's how we need to start responding, folks, because more and more of our stuff is going to be taken away or we'll have less ability to buy stuff. And that's okay, because we shouldn't be connected to this earth. Uh, he says, uh, he needs, no fe- needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose, nor banishment, to whom heaven is his country. We're connected here. Why? Our citizenship is in heaven. This earth is, is not our home. Nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, death, the threat of death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Death will set me at liberty from sin and sorrow. That's what I want. So if death is uh, the threat, fine, bring it on. Folks, we need to start thinking that way. Now, we always have needed to think this way. But now more than ever. I don't, who knows where all of this stuff in our... And by the way, all around the world, there's tremendous suffering and suffering for your stand for Christ. And we've talked about it forever. It's coming, we have been saying. Well, it's really... It, it's on the verge of being here, it seems. We're in a day when um, freedom of speech is being taken away, it seems. I won't say it's happened, but boy, oh boy, it looks like it's happening. Freedom of religion. Some of our rights are going to be, seems like, taken away. We defund the police and then take away individuals' abilities to defend themselves. And where are we going to be? See, folks, all the stuff that we have treasured connected to the American way of life. Those things are slipping away. And we can hold on tighter. Why? We don't really, we're not citizens here. And Peter brings it out over and over. So Peter wants to impress the same attitude uh, upon his readers in this book. The entire book, if you uh, have read the book of First Peter, you know the entire book is addressed to believers who are facing the threat of loss, uh, torture, death, confiscation. They were facing the same threats Eusebius is referencing here, the same kinds of threats that are now um, looming in our lives. So 
They were standing for the Lord, and they were suffering for it. And folks, if we stand for the Lord, we will as well. So today I just want to do a flyover of the book of 1 Peter, overview the book, extract Peter's main points so that we'll be impressed with the need to stand for the Lord in a hostile world. Now your pastor, no doubt, has addressed these same topics over these months because it's been on our minds. So I may say things he's already said. I may encourage you to stay awake anyway, because Peter has a lot to say here. And I think it'll be encouraging to us. Let me give you a little background into the book of First Peter. First, from the, the very first verse, it's clear that Peter wrote this book as a circular letter. It wasn't written to a specific church, but to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. From the contents of the book, uh, it seems likely that the churches uh, uh, possessed a mixture of Jew and Gentile believers. The, the purpose of this book relates primarily to the persecution they were facing. So chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, 2, 20 through 22, chapter 3, 13 through 18, 4, 4 3 through 5, and 4, 12 through 19. All these passages relate to the believers, to the fact that the believers are suffering and how they should respond to it. So it's not hard when you read this book to figure out what the main theme is. There are some books that you read and you go, wow, what's, what's, the, main, what's the main thrust? With First Peter, it's not hard to figure that out. I'll turn to chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5. Verse 12. Verse 12. And we really get a strong, clear understanding of why Peter wrote the book. Chapter 5, verse 12. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting you and declaring that this, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You see the word this? It's looking back on all that Peter has just talked about. He's referencing the, the Christian way of living under persecution that he has addressed and described all throughout the book. So here's, here's the, the reason for this book. I'm exhorting you, this, this way of life is the true grace of God. Stand firm in this kind of Christian living that I've described throughout the entire book, this kind of living in the midst of persecution, trial, suffering, and difficulty. So the whole point of this book is believers must stand firm in the grace of God amidst suffering and persecution. If you forget anything else, that's the point of the book. The whole book. Believers must stand firm in the grace of God amidst suffering and persecution. Let's pray and we'll, we'll try and dig into this book today. Father, we need what Peter writes in this book. We need this more today than maybe we ever have. There are places around the world, people, believers around this globe and throughout church history who have needed the challenge of this book. And now we, in our world, need it more than ever before. And so, Father, our looking at this book today is really kind of preventative maintenance, Father. As we study it, as we dig into the counsel given to us in this book, allow that counsel to prepare us for our future. Help us to be faithful believers who love you and serve you, stand for you in the world in which we live. We pray for believers around the world for their stand for Christ. Give them grace to stand as this text commands all believers to stand. Help us, Father, to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world to not just, to not just think of us and our struggles, which are 
minuscule compared to what many others are dealing with and suffering. Help us to think globally about people's, people's, people groups around the world who need Christ and globally to consider believers around the world who need your grace and your help. Please, Father, bless our time. Use this book and the challenges we find within it to minister to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, folks, we'll see four things this morning. First, turn to, turn to chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. First thing, amidst Christian suffering. So here's Peter now describing a, a life of a God-pleasing life of grace in the midst of struggle, torture, torment, persecution. Point number one we find in this book, amidst Christian suffering, stand firm in personal holiness before unbelievers. Stand firm in your holy walk. Don't jettison a God-like, Christ-like, holy life when you're suffering. Look at chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, here's why, you should be holy for I am holy. You reflect me. I am the holy God. You are my child. You are mine, my special possession. Be like me in the world. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, in other words, and if you're a Christian, you call on God as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. That word judging there is a present tense. It probably speaks of God disciplining believers in this life. It's not talking about eternal judgment. None of us are going to face, if we've trusted Christ, none of us are going to face uh, uh, God's judgment of, of hell and so forth. If you call on him as father, the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Understand, the whole tenor of this book is life under persecution be holy as I am holy. Conduct yourselves with fear. And notice, throughout the time of your exile, what, he brings this up over and over. If you look at First Peter, the idea of us being sojourners and being in exile, he repeats this over and over in the book because he wants it to be crystal clear. You are not citizens here. Why would you expect the world to coddle you and love you and pull you to itself when you are contrary to it at every turn? Look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, we're going to tour the entire book today. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, here we are again, as sojourners and exiles, you're not from here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, he recognizes that we're sinners. He recognizes that there are temptations with every turn. You can't drive down the highway without seeing a billboard that, that could tempt you. You can't turn the, uh, the TV on for a moment without seeing a commercial that you've, you're shutting down, either for your sake or the sake of your children or both. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and then they will wage war for the rest of your earthly life. Keep your conduct, notice now, among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What should be our response to a sinful and debauched culture? How should we respond to mistreatment because of our, our walk for Christ? Not with less holiness, but with more of it. Notice, when they speak against you as evildoers, you realize the, the idea here. You do right. You live morally. You live a, a godly life. You're honest in the workplace. You, you work hard. You punch in. You go to work. You work hard. You punch out. You go home. And you, you are diligent in your life. Uh, uh, 
in the neighborhood, you're, you're the nice neighbor, or one of them anyway. And you're kind to those around you. And when you're blowing snow in the winter, maybe you just keep going with the snow blow, and you do the neighbors, uh, and these, these folks over here are elderly, and you blow their whole walk and their whole driveway. You're doing good things. You're doing the right things. You're doing godly things. And what will, how will they respond? What will they say of you? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, this is how the believers will respond to your godliness. Let me read to you. Don't turn there. Stay where you are. But chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, just listen to this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He describes how Gentiles, unsaved people live, how we live before we were saved. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What does that sound like to you? It's life today. Now notice this now. This is chapter 4, verse 4. With respect to this, their sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and, and idolatry, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, here's ungodly living, and you don't get involved. You won't do it. And instead of saying of you, you know, he's, he's a moral guy. He's a good guy. I live differently, but he's at least a... No, they're going to malign you because you try to be holy. So getting back to to chapter 2, verse 12, they will speak against you as evildoers. Understand, folks, godliness more and more is going to be called evil. And we see it all the time now. righteousness will be called evil. So you do right, and what are people going to say about you? She's a, she's a sweet woman. He's a nice guy. I don't agree with him. I don't agree with her, but... No, they're evil. You are evil. You are the enemy of all the good that's happening in America. And the good that they're, what they're defining as good is in reality evil. Notice a couple things. First, more often than not, holiness will be ridiculed by unbelievers. I think his point really is that the believer's holiness will be slandered and that our response to slander should not be holding off on holiness, but more holiness. Folks, look. What are we going to do when people call just just basic moral living? Just basic family values. You know, leave it to Beaver, uh, Andrew Griffith Show, just the old, just, I'm not even talking about Christian yet. Not yet, but I will. Even just normal morality of any sort, any Judeo-Christian ethic that we used to possess in this country, when that is viewed as absolute evil, and then you tack onto that the Christian life. That includes morality, but all that a life for Christ stands for, and the holiness that you're living, all of it's going to be called evil. And what's the response? What's our response? I think I'm going to stop doing that stuff then. That's, folks, that's just the opposite of what we need to do. As you're mistreated, maligned, according to chapter 4, called an evildoer, according to chapter 3, as that happens, and it will happen. This, this, this might have been an if 10 years ago. Now it's a when. When you are called an evildoer for standing for righteousness, increase the righteousness, don't abandon it. And there's a reason for it. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. I'm sorry, the end of verse 12 again. Chapter 2, the end of verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against, uh, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Notice this. And some will glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, Jesus has a similar thing he states in Matthew 5, 16. You're in Matthew 5 right now? Are you at 16 yet? Okay, there we go. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I take that to be these people see your godliness and God uses it to bring conviction and they trust Christ. They bring glory to God. According to Peter, on the day of visitation, when God is working, they get saved. This is all shorthand for becoming a Christian. Do you take it the same way? You take it that way? What do you know? We agree. It's good. Um, so you're, so I'm right. That's good. And anyway, folks, the bottom line is this. Sometimes, sometimes God will use your holiness to convict sinners and they'll trust Christ. Now, look at chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Look at chapter 3. We have an example of this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1. You know this text. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by what? The conduct, meaning the holy living of their wives. Some may come to Christ. Some men might come to Christ, or one spouse might come to Christ because the other spouse, lives a holy life before them day in and day out. That's what's referenced here. Folks, we don't turn down the holiness when we're beaten up for it. We turn it back up. We make sure it's at maximum setting. And God may indeed use your holy walk to bring some to Christ. And isn't that what we're trying to see accomplished anyway? You know, we, we are, we're, we're wired now because of the world in which we live, America, which is a wonderful place to live. We are wired to seek happiness, comfort, and ease. And those things are going to be diminishing. It seems. I'm no prophet, and I hope I'm totally wrong. But it seems. But we need to change our, our joy-o-meter. Here's my joy-o-meter. It's all about earthly stuff. And when... Earthly stuff is good. I'm a happy camper. We need to change our joyometer to I'm glorifying God and I'm living a holy life and God may use that to bring people to Christ. That's what, bring me, what brings me joy. Not the earthly stuff. So, first of all, amidst Christian suffering, stand fast in your holiness. Don't turn it down. Don't jettison it. Secondly, Amidst Christian suffering, stand fast in your Christian expectation, your Christian hope. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer, here we go, suffer for righteousness' sake. Again, this theme is over and over. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be discouraged. Don't be overtaken. Don't be filled with fear. But instead, as you're suffering for righteousness' sake, instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What's really interesting here is that if we, when we're being mistreated, if we shrink into the closet, this never happens. And by the way, when we become like the world, which is the call of so much within evangelicalism, just be like them. When you are like them and no different from them, the, the unsaved world, there's nothing calling them to Christ. Being like them is not going to help them. It'll help us, but in the sense of making life easier. But it won't be worth anything for eternity. So a couple things here. By the way, first of all, this idea of hope is repeated over and over in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's repeated, this, this term used for hope is found five times. Chapter 1, verse 3, 113, 121. 
3.5 and now here in 3.15 over and over. Now it's not talking about, I know that you know this, it's not talking about some pious optimism. Oh, I hope it all gets better. Folks, sometimes things don't. There are, there are people in the hospital. There are people struggling in your church family. And sometimes there is, sometimes it's not going to get better. So that's when we look at the quote from Eusebius and we say, oh, if it doesn't get better, the worst thing, can happen, the worst thing that can happen to me is death. Sounds good to me, right? So he's not speaking of some pious optimism here. He is speaking of, as I think you know, a, this word hope, a deep conviction and settled expectation in God's working. God knows what he's doing. God has a sovereign, all-wise plan. And he's talking to these believers who are being crushed. And he's saying to them, God knows what he's doing. His plan is all-wise. You might not ever know what the plan is. But the bottom line is, he knows what he's doing. You can rest in him. You can trust in him. This is your Christian expectation. God's sovereign. God's wise. God loves me. And if nothing else, I'll be in heaven with him. Nothing better than that anyway. Now, really, there are a couple things here. First, we need to face the suffering that we're under with this confident expectation. And then secondly, we need to express our confident expectation. He goes on, verse, verse 15, passage you know, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for hope that is in you. Someone's going to ask you, if you live for Christ, and if you live, if you're a person who's filled with joy, you're in the workplace, you're in the neighborhood, you've got people that you know, and you are known to be a person of joy, a person of Christ-likeness, a person, of, a person with a, a kind uh, spirit and a joyful spirit, someone, according to the text, the implication from the text is someone's going to ask you, what's up with you? The more I hear the news, the more I talk to people, people are pessimistic, people are ticked, they're angry, uh, 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 people hold this political view, hate the people who hold that political view, and vice versa. Man, there's so much going on. What's the deal with you? You got, are you on some medication that really helps? What is solving this? And what is it? Because I need to get the same prescription. Folks, when you are a person of hope, oh, by the way, you know, I've told my wife this. I've told my wife this. Sometimes I have to stop listening to the news. Just telling you for me, personally. Now, there's, there's certain news I won't listen to because it's lies. I'm not going to identify or talk about I'm just saying some of it's lies. I don't listen to that because I go nuts. But even the, the news that is truthful, if I listen to that for too long, I get ticked. Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. I hope you navigate it better than I do. But sometimes I get ticked, so I can't listen to it. Just shut it off, Vic, before I shoot somebody. Just shut it off. Now, listen, I hope I'm not offending you by saying this. This is just me. Sometimes I just can't handle it anymore. I just, okay. If we walk around in our lives holding that anger, and the world sees it, how are you different than everything else that's going on? So instead... So listen, if you've got to shut the news off to, to, keep it, to keep your sanctification, shut it off and pray and read your Bible. And, but you've got to be a person of hope. And if you are, when you are, God will use it in the lives of some. I'm not saying all your neighbors will, will come to your front door, drop their knees and ask Jesus to forgive them. That'd be wonderful. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But the bottom line is, you'll be a person of hope. Contrary to the world in which we live, and you'll stand out, and God will use you. Thirdly, amid Christian suffering, stand firm in your family relationship with other believers. Turn to chapter 2. And some Old Testament terminology is used that I think also communicates something of family. Now, this is really important, and I'm going to camp here for a little while. 
amidst Christian suffering, you have to be a church. You have to be a church. So chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you're, and this is some Old Testament terminology that I think has reference to some degree or another to a close family spirit. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's using Old Testament terminology to communicate some points. That you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness. They're living in darkness, remember. He's called you out of darkness into this, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's talking to local churches. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have this kind of family terminology, Old Testament terminology that communicates togetherness. Uh, we're, we're part of something together. The, these believers in the, their local churches should be serving one another as a royal priesthood, as a nation consecrated to God. And the bottom line, folks, is we need each other. That's it. We need each other. Local churches provide a haven for believers which can rejuvenate and strengthen and support and buttress. And without a local church to do that, you're going to be struggling. And you may just simply lose the struggle. There's a book that um, Donald Whitney wrote maybe 30 years ago, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. And he's, he, he's talking about a pastor. And this, this pastor, there was a, a man in his church who had missed like a month, month and a half. And the pastor finally was able to arrange to come over to this man's house and chat with him. And so the pastor shows up at his house, and the man lets him in, and they sit in the living room. There's a fireplace. This might date the story a little bit. Very few of us have fireplaces raging, right? Especially not now. So there's a fireplace going, and the man sits down, and the pastor sits down. They're both kind of looking at the fire. And they said nothing. And the pastor notices, you know, the fireplace poker, and he, he reaches in with a fireplace poker, and he takes a burning hot ember out of the fire, pulls it forward, separating it from the rest of the flames. And the man's intrigued. They're both just watching this thing get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and pretty soon it's like a black coal, lifeless. And the pastor takes that poker and shoves that coal back in with the other burning embers. Within a few moments, it's red hot again. And the man looks at the pastor and says, I get your point. I'll be in church this Sunday. Folks, that's the, you get the point, right? You pulled away from the church, or you pull yourself away. Now, there are so many reasons, and I, I get it. Uh, you know, we're, I was going to say, we're Baptists, Bible church. You're Baptistic. And the bottom line is, we're, you know, every 30 people, there's 40 opinions. And that's just how it's been right now. With COVID and masks and all the stuff. And I, I'm not taking a position. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know, I don't care. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, 30 people, 40 positions. Some people can't agree with themselves. And, and so there is going to be disagreement here. But Peter's addressing this in this book, and we'll look at a couple things in a minute, because he knows that these believers are not going to survive the trials they're facing alone. And they were never meant to. You were never meant to face the world that we're living in and the trials and suffering that, it, that, are, that are coming. You're, you were never meant to face those things alone. You were meant to face it with the, the, the common fellowship, the, the loving and caring fellowship of a local church family. And you've, you've got to strengthen this, not let all that's going on, let, let, let Satan let all that's going on diminish it. 
Because it will be Satan who does it. Let me remind you of a text that you know well. Don't turn there. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How are we going to help each other, stir each other up to love and good works, to godliness, to faithfulness? How are we going to help each other? By Skype? By Zoom? By phone calls? We don't have to get together. We can just listen to pastor speak from our living rooms because it's kind of cool listening to pastor in my jammies. You know, no. Technology has allowed us to do those kinds of things for a time. But folks, that's not church. You're, you're, you've, you've become a total spectator. If that's what's happening. I'm, I'm, by the way, those who are listening and seeing and all the stuff you guys are doing, we're doing it too. Every good church is, is doing what they can to, to minister to their people in their homes because for legitimate reasons they, they can't be with the family. But we can't let Satan use the great technologies to, to separate the family permanently. Because if Satan does that, you're just going to be a ragtag group of people every Sunday watching or listening. And you're going to miss all the fellowship. And you're not going to be doing this. Stirring up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, the bottom line is uh, we cannot, no matter where the mandate comes from, we cannot be a church if we're not together worshiping together. There is something, uh, there is something about being together and hearing God speak through the preaching of the word. There's something about that dynamic. There's something about the pastor looking you dead in the eyeballs that's different. Now, I didn't ordain this, but God did. He ordained the method of preaching and the message to be preached. And he ordained local churches that we gather together and we sing together. You know, it's not, it's not a lot of fun standing up in your living room with your hymnal singing the hymns as you hear it over a, a device. You lose a whole lot. You know, I'll tell you, it's a little bit the difference between being at a football game and with 50,000 other people, yeah, than, than, than singing in your living room, yeah, all by yourself. I mean, I'm not saying we don't do that. We do that. Yes, at home. We look. But it's not the same as being with 50,000 other people, Right? Lifting up your voice. 100,000, is that what you're saying? Okay. Oh, yeah, Michigan. Okay. 100,000. Whatever it is. All my critics from the, from, the, from the group. Bottom line, folks, you, you need to be together. And, and there's going to be a time coming when the technology has to be bypassed because we need to be together. You, you say, well, God would not like that. That's not right. God. Look at this, Hebrews. Not neglecting as a habit of some. Now listen. You may say, you may say the author of Hebrews didn't, knew nothing about COVID when he wrote this. The author of Hebrews is God. He knew all about COVID when he, when he wrote this. And the bottom line is what they were facing in this day when, when the author of Hebrews wrote this was death. <laughs> yeah. COVID might bring, our, might bring my death. But what's the threat, what's the threat again? Mm-hmm. Liberty from sin and sorrow and this world and in the Lord's presence. There's, there's no threat there. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying we should purposely put anyone in danger. That's not what I'm saying. I'm sure your pastors, pastors plural, and the men are, are trying to navigate this as best they can. But the bottom line is, folks, we need to be together. And Hebrews commands it. Because we can't be a church unless we are. Now, a couple things regarding being a church. First of all, believers should rid themselves of any inner family strife. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1. So, if in this persecuted situation, we're going to be the haven, you're going to be, your church is going to be the haven that it, God intends it to be, has commanded it to be. First of all, chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Now, Peter is 
He might be referring to your relationships with all people. In relationship to everyone you know, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. But the deal is that just before this verse and just after this verse, chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 5, just before and after, he's talking about a local church. So he may be referring to our relationships with all people, but certainly our relationship with believers is included and may be the primary point of verse 1 of chapter 2. So here, he's saying, in, in your suffering, in your struggle, in your hardship, be church. And in order to do that, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Malice refer, just refers to every type of wickedness, deceit, hypocrisy. Envy refers to every type of self-centered attitude. It, it, it speaks of deceitfulness, crookedness, jealousy. Slander refers to any kind of envious speech. Every church, every church, there are disagreements between people. That doesn't stop us. Doesn't stop a church from being a haven. It better not. We're all so different. Our backgrounds are so different. I'm not a Michigan fan. I know I should probably be shot for that. I don't think Jesus was, but anyway, listen. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just messing with you, boy. I'm just messing with you. I don't care, but boy, some people really care, don't they? There are differences here. There are differences in background, rearing, education, interests, but there's a few things we all agree on, and they're the most important things. And so we don't worry about all that other stuff. We, 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 we care about Christ and the things of Christ. And there's going to be opportunity. You know, the fact that he commands this, that in these churches, these things were happening. There was malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in the churches. And churches haven't changed. It's here. All these things are here. There's malice here. I hate to say that. There's deceit. There's lying going on. There's hypocrisy, meaning someone's an actor, and this is the face they show, but this is who they really are. That's happening here, right here, in this room. There's envy. Boy, I like that guy's whatever. He just did get a new Porsche. Oh. By the way, I don't really care about Porsches. I just think it's funny. Envy. You have, some, you have something that I think I deserve. Now, I'll tell you what I do deserve. Hell. So anything good is not really in the conversation. But you got something I think I should have. Slander. And slander. Gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? By the way, the term doesn't just mean um, communicating lies. It it's not saying, don't lie to other people about other people. The term slander just speaks of evil speaking. Speaking with the desire to demean or crush someone else. It's more about attitude than anything else. I want this guy to be thought of, to be thought less of. And so I'm going to say things about him or her so that others think less of them. Now that's happening here. At least... It was happening here. And in churches, these things happen. And folks, Peter is saying here, put this away. If, if this family is going to be a strong family, you've got to get rid of this stuff. And you know if you're harboring some of it. If you have a problem with someone in this room, talk to them today. Or make the phone call today. Whatever it takes. If there's some issue between you and another member, between you and the deacons, between you and the pastor, 
between you and Mrs. So-and-so, whatever it is. You deal with it now. Why? Because this place is supposed to be completely different from what's out there. And what's out there is malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And all the things that the world is, this place shouldn't be. This is to be a haven where we love each other, care for each other in all of the weirdnesses that we have, in all the disagreements we have, in all the differences. <coughs> it doesn't matter because we love Christ and we are, we are committed to the things of Christ and we love each other in all of our weaknesses and frailties. If you've wronged someone and you know it and just don't want to admit it, deal with it. Just deal with it. Because Satan wins. Satan wins when you don't. If you've been harboring ill will, if you have been deceitful, playing a role, wearing the mask, oh, everything's fine. I pastored for 19 years. I can't tell you how often I heard, everything's fine, and it wasn't. And I can only ask, how's it going? How can I pray for you? Everything's fine. And a smile. And behind the smile, everything's not fine. Folks, that's hypocrisy. That's what we're talking about here. If everything's not fine, talk to the people involved and deal with it. Clear it up. If you're envious and jealous, if you're, if you're the gossip, if you're one of the gossips, I'd like to just say, if you're one of the gossips, just shut up. That's my knee-jerk carnal. How can I say it more nicely? You know, I'll, I'll do it in the old 60s. Put a sock in it. You know, whatever. Stop it. Stop it. And ask God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of the person you're slandering and go to the person and tell them, I said this about you. And by the way, I said this about that person. I'm in the wrong. I'm sinning. And he'll and stop. Make this the haven that it needs to be. You're not going to find a haven out there. Maybe there's a day once when we did find some havens out there. They're becoming less and less and smaller. And the real haven is right here. And this is what God designed to be the haven for us. So make it that, and don't let Satan ruin it. Secondly, believers should consistently demonstrate an, an inner family love. This, of course, is connected. Turn to chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Wow, we got to hurry here. When do you usually get done, brother? When do you, when do you get done? We're going to get done today when you finish. Oh, yeah. Don't ever tell a, a, don't ever tell a pastor that. That's not good. Okay, chapter 4. I'll try and speed here. Believers should be consistently should consistently demonstrate an inner family love. So don't be guilty of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now, what should these believers who are being persecuted do in relationship to the family? Chapter four, verse eight. Above all, in other words, if you forget everything else, don't forget this: keep loving one another earnestly, since. What's this? Love covers a multitude of sins. Here you have Peter admitting, you're all a bunch of sinners. And you have sinned against each other, and you will sin against each other. And the pastor will blow it. I got news for you. The pastor will blow it. The pastor's lovely wife will blow it, probably rarely. But she'll blow it. And all of you are going to blow it. So, well, they sinned against me. Yeah, let me ask you, how many times have you sinned against others? And how many times have you come across in such a way that looked like you were sinning, even though you had no idea what was going on? How often has that happened? I remember situations where people cross each other in the hallway, and I end up with a counseling session because someone looked like a little angry when they crossed each other. I don't know what that guy was thinking. He had a bad day. Keep... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another. Notice this. Why, why does he say this now? Without grumbling. Because he knows that's how we are. Yeah, I'll help you. Stink, I didn't want to do that. There's a football game on or there's a whatever going on. It's my only day off and the guy's moving. 
much. Show hospitality. Because this is how we are. That we, listen, our, our, our Christian help of one another is often, if I got nothing else going on, I'm happy with it. I'll do it. But if I got something going on, I'm not happy. So he addresses both the action and the attitude. Show hospitality and don't whine about it. Be happy to serve your Christian brother. Uh, as each has received a gift. Now he's talking about spiritual giftedness. And the bottom line is, use your gifts to serve God's people. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him uh, belongs belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So a couple things here. Peter's saying, if we're going to be a haven, this place, this church family, there's got to be love, encouragement, and service. And he mentions four things. First, this love must be, number one, earnest. It must be diligent. He says, earnestly love one another uh, in verse 8. And this word earnestly means, it speaks of stretching out and straining. Earnestly, fervently, passionately, deeply. And again, our love for other people is often, when it's convenient, I'll show you that I care about you. I got nothing going on, I'll be happy to help you. This term literally means to strain. This is going to cost you to, to show love to your Christian brother. This is not a love of convenience. This is, yeah, it hurts me. I got other things I could be doing, I'd rather be doing. I'm losing money, I could be working. Secondly, this family love between believers should be forgiving and forbearing. Love covers a multitude of sins. Folks, you know, the Bible talks about, the New Testament talks about forgiving and forbearing. That's included, I think, here. Forgiving is when sin is involved. You've sinned against me. I forgive you. Let's move on. Or if I have to talk to you, if there's, if there's a consistent sin that I see in your life, I need to talk to you to be a blessing to you. Do you realize this? You're sinning here. I've seen it expressed four times. And brother, I love you enough to tell you. See? Often the sins that we commit against each other are one and dones. You know, it's not a habit. And so we forgive. When it's, when it's a habit, we lovingly talk to each other. That's one aspect of church discipline. We discipline ourselves internally. We care for each other. That's forgiveness. There's also forbearance. Forbearance is, you're weird, but I can, I can live with it. You like that football team. What is, what is wrong with you? See? Uh, there are weird people in Bible-preaching churches. Yeah, <laughs> at, least he's smart. at least he's man enough to admit it. Right? I didn't say a thing, brother. I'm not going to point out the weird people here because you folks kindly support us. So why would I do that? It'd be counterproductive, right? Folks, listen. The Bible over and over admits that in our churches there's going to be sin. And guess who's going to commit it? Guess who's going to commit it? Me and you. But this place won't be a haven unless you deal with it the way God commands you to. So listen, I'm telling you, if there's something going on, don't put the mask, the hypocrisy on and say everything's fine. You deal with what's going on in your life. You talk to people that you have to talk to. You address it to make this what you need it to be because things out there are not going to get better. They're going to get harder. And then sec- um, thirdly, this family love extends hospitality and cares. Verse 9, hospitality without grumbling. And fourthly, this family love between believers should cause you to minister in such a way that you use your gifts. You use your gifts. Each one has received a gift. Use it to serve himself. No, one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You've been gifted. If you're a believer, you've got some spiritual gifts. Use them for him and for them. That's why you have them. Okay, lastly, 
Well, here we go. Lastly, amidst Christian suffering, stand fast in your separation from the world. I'll just hit this quickly. Over and over in this book, we find he, he calls Christians sojourners, exiles. We've already seen it. The bottom line is, as the world presses up against you, you've got to maintain a, I'm a sojourner, an exile here. I'm, part of a, I'm a citizen of another place of heaven, and I'm not part of this world. There's got to be a separation, a holy separation. We've already talked about holiness. There's got to be a holy separation between you and the world. And we're gonna, it's going to be, it's going to become easier just to, it is, it's going to become easier just to blend in. People aren't going to beat up on me verbally if I just go along with the flow. I'm not saying be, I'm not saying be a curmudgeon. It's a good word we need to use more. I'm not saying that. Don't be the guy who's always disagreeable, who's ornery. I used to say to my people, I'm an independent fundamental Baptist, but I'm not ornery. I'm not looking for a fight. If there's a fight against God and biblical truth, I'll stand there with my dukes up. But I'm not looking for it. Don't you be looking for it. But we have to stand against the things of this world, folks. So let, let me just read Eusebius. Let me just read Eusebius again and we'll close. Because I think he captures so much of what we've been saying here. He needs not fear confiscation. Who has nothing to lose? Let, let, let it all be taken. Let it all be taken. If you were here in Sunday school, you saw Myanmar. They have nothing. I'll tell you, the great thing about going overseas to third world countries is that they have nothing, but they have everything. They, they don't have a nice house. A nice car, nice clothes. Half the time they don't have food in their stomachs, but they have everything. And they, they won't give up going to church. They will not neglect the haven God's created because this is all that they have. And we're getting to that point now. We should have thought this a haven um, more in the past. Now we're being pressed to realize it like never before. Don't abandon it, strengthen it. He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Death is no threat. So folks, amidst suffering and persecution, you must stand fast in the grace of God. Personal holiness, Christian expectation, hope, family, relationship, strengthen this. Don't let it be torn apart. Don't be part of it being torn apart. And lastly, separation from the world. Thank you, Father, for this tag, for this book, for its wonderful message that is just so applicable to us today. We have oftentimes been negligent in how we respond to the world. Help us, Father, to live holy lives, to live lives of hope, to be people of hope, and use holiness and hope in our lives to have influence over unbelievers, that they would see Christ's likeness, that they would see hope, confident expectation, joy, that you would use those those traits to draw people to Christ. Father, strengthen the sinews of this family, of this body. Where there is disagreement right now, where there is pride, where there is hypocrisy, where there is malice and anger, Father, I pray that you, that your spirit will deal with it right now in the hearts of everyone in this room. And that you, you would bring humility, forgiveness, forbearance, that you would strip off all the masks, that there'd be openness and honesty, that this would be a church, a church family, where there is earnest love, where there is ministry, hospitality, no grumbling, where there is service, where, where there is a, a 
a, a genuine love for one another in all the faults. Because, Father, we know local churches, this, this church family, is your haven for believers in a hostile world. Father, we know that we are separate from the world. Help us to realize that and to not allow the pressure to pull us into it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.